The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world, yes, really works. Thank you so much for being part of the show, and thank you, all of you, for helping to promote the show, publicizing it, telling other people about it, sending the URL, encouraging people to listen. All of that is very much appreciated. And also, thank you to those of you who have written in. Uh, I'll give you the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Easy to contact me there and uh, greatly appreciate it. Well, today we have uh, a very special guest on the show. Um, well, she's not really on the show, but we're going to present her. We're going to feature her. She is a very brave, young 16-year-old girl. Uh, she's actually from Denmark. Uh, she grew up with her family in a little village called Ballerup. Uh, and Ballerup is just near Copenhagen in Denmark. And um, they, uh, well, they illegally immigrated into the United States. They crossed over the southern border. Uh, I think they swam across the Rio Grande, although uh, Helga told me it was more like a wade than a swim. She said there's really not much walk in there. And yes, I'm referring to the brave and courageous young Helga Lunenberg, recently arrived in the United States with her family from Ballerup, Copenhagen, well, Denmark, near Copenhagen. And um, they're now happily settled. Uh, they are, um, uh, they've been provided government housing, and uh, they are also, uh, they receive food stamps and all kinds of benefits that uh, new Californians get. Uh, they're living in a lovely little town called Tea Kettle Junction. Uh, Tea Kettle Junction is um, uh, it's a little bit east of Mount Whitney in California, about 150 miles northwest of Las Vegas. And, um, and she says she would welcome any listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show who happen to be in the area. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's not far from Chloride City, California, um, you all know where Stovepipe Wells is? Well, it's a little north of Stovepipe Wells, east of Mount Whitney, and her town is called Tea Kettle Junction, where they are happily relocated um, by the courtesy, and she says by the unbridled generosity of, uh, she doesn't want to say her fellow citizens, because she and her parents are not citizens, they're illegal immigrants, and she's very comfortable with that term. But um, there's no taking away the courage of this young Scandinavian girl who, by the way, has started uh, telling Americans what she thinks of this country. She's been very, very forthright. Uh, and I'll tell you, she is indignant. Young Helga Lunenberg is highly indignant that so much money has been spent, money we don't have. And we're digging ourselves into such a horrendously deep budget deficit. Um, she says, look, this has stolen her generation's economic future. And she's upset about it. She's more than upset about it. She's, she's hurt. She's pained. She's indignant. She's uh, almost, I mean, when she speaks about this to adult groups 
And, and I want to tell you something. You can only admire how the adults pay attention to her. Uh, you can only admire the applause she gets and the press coverage that young Helga gets wherever she speaks. Look, is this a great country or what? Anyway, let's, let's hear Helga. My message is that we'll be watching you. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? I know that you were clearly as moved as I was listening to those brave words of young Helga Lunenberg, recently arrived as an undocumented alien with her family in the United States of America, living now in Southern California, <clears throat> uh, not far from the Nevada border. And uh, what she's going to be addressing now is the fact that when she swam, or, or as she more correctly puts it, waded across the Rio Grande River from Mexico into the United States, um, she says it's not fair. She arrived, I mean, literally, her arrival in California was literally carrying a tax burden of over $10,000 a year already just for the interest on the money that her parents' generation spent. And that's what she's really upset about. And, and again, I think we can all um, learn a lesson from Helga's forthrightness and her courage in, and her willingness to speak out about the fact that a young 16-year-old girl arrives in this country asking nothing but a fresh start and asking for freedom, and instead she's she's has thrust onto her young shoulders the burden of she knows she's going to have to pay a minimum of 10,000 year tax as soon as she starts working just to carry her share of the national debt. Can we blame her for her anger and for her upset? I think not. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you continue to look away? Um, is, is this girl, Helga Lunenberg, is she fantastic or what? Um, okay, she's, she's not done yet. Here she's really upset that while the cost of shoes, computers, clothing, washing machines, etc., have all gone down over the last 40 years, a lot, the cost of college has gone up. It's skyrocketed meteorically, and you can hear from her tone of voice how upset she is about this. And she says not only does college cost so much now that people have to go into debt for a degree, but less value is delivered because, she says, the, um, the, the, um, the education she gets is subject to political correctness. So now, instead of teaching truth, they teach what has been officially ordained. And Helga, you know, you'll hear at one point how upset she is, and that's because she's just been saying that for this she could have gone to, to China or to Cuba. Uh, she didn't have to come to the land of the free. If she was going to want to go to a re-education camp instead of a university, she didn't have to wade across the Rio Grande. And uh, she just feels that this is, um, this is stealing her future. That's what she, basically she's upset that uh, the adult generation today 
has wrecked college education, charging more for it, creating cushy jobs for tenured professors and administrators. Look, I'm starting to sound as upset as she is now, but let's go back to her. And come here saying that you're doing enough. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. How dare you? How dare you? But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. How dare you pretend that this can be sold with just business as usual? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? You are failing us. You're listening to brave young Helga Lunenberg, 16-year-old girl from a small town called Ballerup near Copenhagen in Denmark, uh, who is now with her family illegal immigrants living in government housing in the town of Teakettle Junction, California. Uh, from her front porch, she says, she can look towards the west and see the top of Mount Whitney on clear days. Um, and she's very grateful to, to be here in the United States. She really is. But at the same time, she feels obliged to tell us how upset she is at the extent to which the adults' generation, the grown-ups all around her, have stolen her economic future. And, and she's, you know, you can hear the deep pain as, uh, as, as she expresses uh, that she has nothing left to look forward to. And I think that um, Helga deserves not only our sympathy, but also our trusting credulity and, frankly, our submissive susceptibility to the points she's making. Uh, look, you, I mean, it's not as if she can hide her agony about all the tax money that her new American friends are spending on social services for her and all her fellow Scandinavian illegal immigrants pouring into the country. Um, and she says, you know, California is experiencing blackouts now because PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electricity, is cutting off power. She says this is like if she wanted to live in a place that had three hours of electricity a day, she could have gone to Bangladesh or to Somalia. She didn't have to come to California. But she says she understands because instead of spending the money on upgrading the uh, electricity network, and instead of spending money, the tax money of all her fellow Californians on, uh, on uh, upgrading the water delivery system and dams, it's all being spent on providing very comfortable housing for Helga and her four brothers and sisters and her parents as they build a new life in Teakettle Junction. Uh, in California, just west of the Nevada border, northwest of Las Vegas, and not too far from Stovepipe Wells. So uh, here is uh, Helga. We'll just we'll just play a little bit more of it because, frankly, it's 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 just too painful to hear the torment being suffered by this brave young woman as she tells us the things that we've done, and we need to hear how we have stolen her economic future. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say, how dare you? How dare you? We will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. 
Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. You are, of course, listening to the brave and beautiful 16-year-old girl, Helga Lunenberg, formerly of Ballerup in, uh, in Denmark, near Copenhagen. Uh, but now, a new resident of Tea Kettle Junction in California. Um, look, above all, Helga Lunenberg is a giver. She's somebody who really cares about the future. She cares desperately about the fact that economic freedom means truly freedom of tyranny. Because if you are financially independent, then you don't need the government. And the only two ways for you to acquire a tyrant who will be your master and uh, be your controller, the only two ways are by force with weapons, where somebody comes and enslaves you, and the only other way is when you willingly enslave yourself because of your financial need. You turn to the government. And if your grandfather ever told you there's no such thing as a free lunch, then you know that money never comes without strings attached. And the most expensive money in the whole world comes from government. And so what Helga Lunenberg is talking about is how cruel it is, how callous it is, and how deeply immoral it is. And she used that word. She said it's evil when government takes away your chances of financial independence. It's done by taxation. It's done by regulation. Uh, it's done by uh, fees and bureaucracies. And little by little, your economic independence is strangled. And so uh, Helga Lunenberg well deserves all the attention she gets and the way that all the many wise, thoughtful leaders paid attention to her and applauded her and listened to her to show that the message finally got through to them, that yes, they really do care about everyone's financial future, and yes, they are going to stop spending your tax money carelessly and negligently and irresponsibly, and they're going to try and reduce taxes and let people make their way to financial independence. And one of the really valuable tools for doing that is something, <clears throat> something that uh, we call the Financial Prosperity Collection. Now, because many people understand best by video, Mo many people really get it by video, right? How often do you need to do something? You know, learn how to tie a tie or bait a mouse trap or uh, um, convert an old wine bottle into a, a candle lantern. And you don't look up reading instructions. What many of us do is we look up video instructions because for many of us, we are able to learn more quickly and more effectively 
by watching a video. And so with that in mind, uh, what we've done is we've created 10 video lessons about increasing your ability to make money. And this is me teaching you. You would receive a, a little one of those flash drives. You know those thumb drives you plug into the USB port on your computer? You can get that. Or, by the way, if you'd rather, you can just download the whole thing as an MP4 file. You download it, and then you got it. Either way, uh, you can order it at our store at rabbidaniellappin.com. It's called the Financial Prosperity Collection. <clears throat> and uh, what we do is we deal with t- 10 fundamental lessons that have served the Jewish people very, very well in good times and in bad times, in hospitable and wonderful countries like the United States of America, as well as in brutal and hostile regimes, places uh, where, in spite of the problems, Jews have been able to use these principles. And uh, each of the one-hour shows in the 10-hour collection is me teaching you all the details. I mean, to give you an example, uh, the first one is about the morality of making money. And you might say, well, you know, what do I care about the morality of making money? I just want to make money. And the point is that um, if you are in any way a decent and upright person, you are going to be seriously handicapped in your attempt to increase the amount of revenue you, you create um, if you don't understand that morality. And, um, and there are all kinds of implications there. One of them is, and, and I, I point out how fascinated I was, this is about, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, when I first discovered that business schools around the country have started introducing courses of spirituality to their Masters of Business Administration programs, their MBA programs. So, for instance, Columbia University in New York, uh, their School of Business teaches uh, creativity and personal mastery. Uh, Stanford's Graduate School of Business teaches the business world moral and spiritual inquiry. Um, University of Notre Dame in Indiana, they teach spirituality and religion in the workplace because everybody has understood that making money is an endeavor that goes beyond the physical. This is not the same as eating a chocolate creamy clear or gobbling up a hot dog. The process of making money is deeper and it's more complex. And so, for instance, one of the things that we need to know is uh, you have to know the right question to ask. Uh, When you're looking for an answer, wouldn't it be helpful if you knew how to formulate the question? And sometimes when you're quietly planning your week, you're trying to figure out the approach to overcoming some of the challenges you have in your work week. Wouldn't it be interesting if you knew exactly how to formulate the question? Because one of the points in ancient Jewish wisdom is that if you know how to ask the question and you ask the right question, the answer is much easier to locate. It very often pops up there right by itself. So at any rate, take a look at uh, something called the Financial Prosperity Collection. It's 10 uh, hours of, of video teaching on how to increase your revenue. 
You can get it on a flash drive or you can download it either way. But here's the great thing. Um, it's on a sale price, $50 off its price. That's $50 literally in your pocket um, because we acknowledge that uh, right now I am preparing this show in the middle of the Jewish holidays of the month of October. And uh, that means that our store is closed intermittently whenever it is a biblical festival on which uh, no work is allowed to be done. We close our store, and that means it's harder for you, and we're sorry about that. But when the store is open, uh, we compensate you with $50 off the price of the financial prosperity collection, either an instant electronic download or a uh, package containing a flash drive, uh, which you will receive by the mail. So um, all of, you can read more about that. If you go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, head over to the store and uh, go to, I think it's page three, and there you'll be able to read more about the Financial Prosperity Collection. And there's no question about it that uh, you and other people in your family, other people in your financial orbit can benefit from this. And what's more, watching it together, by the way, is more than just a social activity. Watching it together, I guarantee you, will do you more good than watching a, f a football game. It may not be as fun, but it'll do you more good. Getting together with a, a friend, somebody important in your life, and watching another of the 10 video lessons on um, the Financial Prosperity Collection, yeah, that will do more for you than watching another five episodes of Breaking Bad. Uh, in other words, don't waste time on amusement and entertainment when you can invest that time in self-improvement, in making yourself more effective. Look, it's a simple thing. Um, if you are able to double your income over the next 12 months from what it was over the last 12 months, you have a better life or a worse life? All right, silly question, right? But what's not a silly question is, will you head over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, look at page three of the store, and uh, you will be able to read more about the Financial Prosperity Collection. Now, uh, how do you improve your revenue? Well, that's what I teach you. That's what the 10 video programs are all about. But you know what? It's not, it's not learning new tricks because business is about authentic human interaction. And that is never accomplished by a trick, right? Sometimes very, very scuzzy and low quality salesmen try and trick you and you feel tarnished. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a horror. You just want to get away from there because you know the games they're playing with you and you don't like it. Uh, that's not the way to build a business. That's not a way to increase your base of clients or customers or whoever it is that you serve. Now, one of the key things in uh, improving and increasing your revenue is developing a deep respect for other human beings. Why? Well, because they are children of God. It's as simple as that. And so when you, I mean, why is it that um, when a, a princess 
You know, right now, uh, the Queen has a grandson and a grand and, and, and his wife, um, who, uh, William and Kate, right, they travel around the world. And wherever they go, people greet them with, with huge welcomes. And people are nice to them, and people give them beautiful gifts. Why? They're just another young couple on a little bit of a tour, having a nice vacation. No, they are the granddaughter of the Queen of England. And that makes them important. People who want to honor the Queen and don't have access to the elderly monarch in Buckingham Palace, God Save the Queen, is both the anthem and my uh, profound prayer, because I really do not want to see a King Charles on the British throne. Uh, but a King William and Kate, I think, would be a completely different story. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we'd like to pay homage to the Queen. We, we can't do it, but we can pay homage to her through uh, paying homage to her grandchildren or her children in, in some cases. So that's how that works. When we realize, and I'm being very serious, this is a business discussion because business means serving other human beings. If you cannot bring yourself to serve another human being, you are not going to be an effective business leader. Now, I don't care that there are certain horrible people who have high positions in business. It doesn't last eventually they get brought down because everybody knows whether you are using them or serving them. And a CEO of a corporation who understands that his role is to serve his customers, his uh, vendors, his employees, that's what he's there for, is going to be more effective. And I don't care whether you're looking to, uh, to be promoted from your position of coffee pourer in an unnamed international coffee chain who does not yet advertise on this show, uh, and you wish to be promoted to a regional manager, the way to that is partially through respecting your customers and your fellow employees, feeling a sense of eagerness to serve them. But you see, if your fundamental belief, and, and you can arrive at this in different ways. This is not uh, an evangelical program. I'm not trying to proselytize you. I'm not trying to change your religious outlook. I promise you, I'm really, really not. I'm only here to give you information, and it's up to you to decide what, if anything, and how to implement that to improve your life in the areas of finance faith, friendship, and family. And in this case, talking about finance, um, if you, I'm just giving you an example here, all right? If you happen to belong to the rapidly diminishing group of people who still think that uh, Darwinian evolution explains why it is that we are here on this planet, then your fellow worker and the next customer who comes to the counter is nothing other than a talking chimpanzee. And look, I don't know about you, but I don't respect chimpanzees. They're animals. I take care of them. I look after my pet chimpanzee. I feed it. I make sure it gets clean. Respect? Uh-uh. 
I'm sorry, no, it doesn't get my respect. Absolutely not. As if anything, I expect it to serve me. Uh, my horse, right? I love my horse. Beautiful horse. My llama, I love my llama. But they are there to serve me, not me to serve them. I'll take care of them, but basically because of self-interest. If I don't look after my horse, it's not going to be in a good condition uh, for me to ride it. Right? It's like my car. I look after my car because I want it to be a reliable uh, resource to me. That's what it is with animals. But people, absolutely not. Uh, I respect people, even if they are resources, even if they are doing things for me. But I really respect them because they are touched by the finger of God. Now, that's my particular uh, avenue for achieving a deep, authentic, almost palpable sense of respect for everyone with whom I come into contact. And many of those people are my clients. Many of them are my customers. And yes, I do respect them, not because they give me money, but because they are touched by the finger of God. And if, as the result of our interaction, and as the result of my serving them, not only willingly, but eagerly and enthusiastically, money flows into my bank account, well, why should that surprise me, that a good and loving God should have created a world where me being the right kind of person, and me doing the right kind of thing, results in the incredible blessing of financial abundance. And so changing your outlook is absolutely crucial. And I think that that may be possibly easier to do by video uh, than by anything else. I think it's done very effectively by reading. There's no question about it. You know that I'm a bigger fan of reading than I am of watching screens. But, uh, but here again, uh, in these videos, you're not going to see me uh, juggling. You're not going to see me interviewing beautiful women. You're not going to see me doing death-defying leaps off the tops of skyscrapers as I escape my pursuers and ready to perform another feat of secret agent daring. You're not going to see any of that. And I'm sorry to have to, to tell you, those of you who have invested in the 10 hours of video in the Financial Prosperity Collection, those of you expecting all that excitement, no, because this isn't about watching, it's about words. And it's about words that penetrate to your heart. And in so doing, are able to make you a different person, a, a person worthy of the financial abundance that is the consequence of following the guidance in these 10 hours of video instruction in the Financial Prosperity Collection. So, uh, over to RabbiDanielLappin.com and learn there, among other things, the secrets of being a giver because success in financial interaction with other human beings comes from being not a taker, but from being a giver. And another way, another way of being a giver and it's a wonderful way of being a giver. And it's a very important way of being a giver is, well, it is to, well, if you're a man, it's become a father. If you're a woman, it's make a man a father. 
Now, I don't just mean by that, hey, if you're a man, go along and impregnate uh, a woman. Go on, because that way you're a father. No, no, uh, you're not. You know, you may be a sperm donor, but you're not a father. Uh, and if you're a woman, go along and get some guy to get you pregnant so that he can be a father. No, not, that's not the, the answer either. Uh, I'm talking about a man becoming a father, somebody who really cares about this tiny little bundle of protoplasm that is squirming in his, well, they don't squirm when they're newborns, but he's holding it and gazing down at this newborn with undisguised affection and with a sudden and utterly unexpected emotion of protectiveness, a determination that he would die if necessary to be a shield for this little creature that he has fathered this little creature that he's brought into the world and for him, uh, for whom he will be responsible until the end of his days. Well, look, the key thing to understand here is that uh, we are created with certain needs. Now, you don't need your rabbi to help you understand that we all have a need for oxygen, we all have a need for water, we all have a need for fuel in the form of hamburgers and fries. No, you don't need me to tell you all of that. But what you might need me to tell you is that a need with which we were created, which in every way is as compelling and as crucial as our need for oxygen and food and water, that is a need to be givers. And... There are a variety of ways of doing that. Um, young Helga Lunenberg does it by giving of her time and her passion and her energy to help make us all aware of how we have imperiled our future by irresponsible government spending. Uh, and that's wonderful. And, and the deep and respectful listening that leaders all around the country give her I think just goes to show um, the extent of how useful and her, how effective her giving has been. Um, there are people who give in different ways. Uh, it is deeply satisfying to give charity. What is charity? Um, you, you discover in your neighborhood a family who's had a financial reversal, right? It happens. It happens. Um, heaven forbid you find a, a family whose breadwinner dies, and there is a widow left um, who's trying to figure out how things are going to come together, right? Well, you know there's somebody like that in your community. You just don't know who it is. And you make an effort. You go find her, and, uh, and you say to her, look, uh, you don't really know me, but um, I uh, have an interest in you and your family getting through this tough time. And... Um, I have here uh, $500 notes. I want you to do me the favor of accepting them. And, um, and I always say, do this with cash, not a check, because with a check, um, you always leave a proud person the, uh, the, the strong urge to refrain from depositing it or refrain from cashing the check. But uh, put a sum of money in the person's hand and explain that and say thank you to them. They're doing you the kindness because they 
are giving you your oxygen. They're giving you your water. They're giving you what you need every bit as badly, namely the opportunity to give. And, uh, and, and maybe one of the most satisfying ways is by being a father. Now, you might say, what about being a mother? Well, of course. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. The relationship between children and their mothers, everybody gets that. Even my horse and my chimpanzee and my llama get that. Um, when, uh, when I acquired my llama, um, my daughters and I went to the ranch where the llama was, and uh, our llama was with his mom. And he was wherever she walked, he followed right behind. And we we really didn't even want to take him away yet. He was, still seemed too attached to his mom. But at, with the encouragement of the ranch owner, who was a friend, uh, he said he'll be just fine. Um, they retain that, uh, that link to their moms for a very long time. It doesn't mean that they'll be unhappy being away. But, uh, well, interestingly enough, we actually had reason to see a number of months later he actually recognized his mom or maybe it was the smell i don't know what it was but we actually witnessed the connection still there and uh, and our llama very happy with us uh, but um uh you know you've seen about the only videos i endorse on youtube are the ones where you see animals and uh and it's fun, you know, watching a baby giraffe being born. And you, you see this, this amazing creature. It's like just shown up in the world. And it knows immediately that this giant giraffe next to it, it's, it's his mom. And somehow there's a special bond and he just wants to be next to her. That's so interesting. Um, I saw a zebra giving birth to a baby zebra. And what a cute animal. <laughs> Those are such beautiful animals. And again, you know, right away, yeah, the relationship between uh, animals and their moms is well known. And virtually all animals do that. But, um, and tragically, the more animalistic American society has become, what do I mean by that? Um, I don't mean it in a, dis well, it is disparaging, but let me explain. When I say the more animalistic that American society has become, and this is true for other countries as well, by the way. I, I say American because I'm familiar with it. But I know that we've got listeners, and just this week I got messages by email and on YouTube and all different places uh, from dozens of listeners, um, a number of you, New Zealand. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Australia, and a, a number of people over there. We had a number of Chinese Many, many people in Africa. We had Uganda this week, and it lets me put new pins in my world map for listeners. Uh, and more and more countries are now represented. So thank you for spreading the word. I really appreciate that. But no matter where you are and which country it is, the principle is the same. And that is that how you answer the question, the fundamental existential question is crucial. What is the fundamental existential question? <laughs> you are a regular listener. You know already. The question is, how did something as extraordinary as a human being arrive on this planet, this lonely little speck of a planet in an isolated solar system, in a far-off corner of a galaxy, which is in itself 
in a remote corner of the Milky Way, and we do not find any other similar creatures anywhere else yet, as far as we know. But certainly they're not everywhere. Uh, contrary to what used to be a popular belief, they're not on Mars. There's no man on the moon. But how did human beings arrive here? And you know that there really are only two answers to that question. Either we are here through a lengthy process of unaided, materialistic, random evolution, in which case we're nothing but another creature on the continuum from goldfish to chimpanzees. And if you extend from goldfish to chimpanzees, we get to you and me. That's one approach. The other one is that God created us in his image and put us here. These are both beliefs. Neither can be proved, uh, obviously. And I'm anybody who thinks that uh, uh, Darwinian evolution is provable really knows absolutely nothing about the Cambrian explosion and uh, the tree of uh, life, both immediately before and immediately after the Cambrian explosion. Uh, if you know anything at all about that, you would know that neither approach, neither the Darwinian explanation for our presence nor the godly explanation for our presence can be proven. However, there is such a thing as likelihood. And if I view you as nothing but another creature on the continuum from goldfish to champ chimpanzee, then it is very difficult for me to respect you. And what's more, part of what is true for your life is that you have very little of a relationship with your dad. And as our society becomes more animalized, meaning becoming closer and closer to the belief that we are here because of random Darwinian evolution, then that really does mean we're animals. And so it's no surprise that in more and more places in the world, the United Kingdom, the United States of America, uh, you will find more and more babies being born to mothers who have no relationship with a baby's sperm donor, none whatsoever. And uh, there was a momentary brief relationship, and that's it. It's gone. That's all there was to it. And so in a sad and tragic way, uh, human societies that have become animalized lose the relationship with father, and they become just like the animal world, where my horse has no relationship with, its, with, the, uh, with the sire, the baby zebra could care less about which animal impregnated its mother. The baby giraffe doesn't care, doesn't know, and never will who its father was. And tragically, we have now arrived at a point in society where huge and growing numbers of little babies are born who will never know who their fathers are and never even care. That is an animalization of society that is tragic and horrible and carries with it frightful penalties, as we are already beginning to see. The threats to society are not climate change, I promise you. The threats to society are larger and larger numbers of children 
born to single mothers who have no relationship with a father of any kind. And so if you really, really care about the future, if you really, really want to make sure that children today do have a future, then what you want to do is make sure that those children have fathers. That's a really, really crucial thing. And this is not only good for those children, it's good for society as well. What do I mean by that? Well, you might remember that uh, a number of weeks back, if you go back to uh, an earlier Rabbi Daniel Lappin show episode, I explained when talking about mass shootings, particularly in the United States of America, I pointed out that almost without exception, and I did say almost without exception, they are all single males. I also commented on why uh, the overwhelming majority, not all, but the overwhelming majority of them are white single males. But uh, that didn't cover everything. Now, in the early 1900s, when Einstein was working on the theory of relativity, he first of all came up with a special theory of relativity. This was a narrow area in which he found that the equations of relativity worked. But he also knew of various areas in which they didn't work, and so he called it the special theory. And a few years later, when he'd polished up the mathematics and was able to now write the equations in a form that applied always every, everywhere, he called it the general theory of relativity. And so a few weeks ago, when I was talking about Rabbi Daniel Lappin's special theory of mass shootings, I spoke about it being single males, uh, single males that didn't have relationships with women in their lives at all. And that was the special theory, because I was well aware that in uh, 2017, there was a horrible shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada, where nearly 60 people were murdered by a guy called Stephen Paddock. And Stephen Paddock had not only been married, he'd been married twice. And he'd not only been married twice, but he had a current girlfriend um, while uh, at the time of the shooting, who mysteriously, he sent her with a bunch of money to go away um, to a Muslim country. Is that relevant? Well, actually, I think it is. I don't believe we've been told the truth about the uh, Las Vegas shooting. But that's a discussion for another time. For today is the point that Stephen Haddock seems to be a contradiction to what I told you a few weeks back. And you're right. He is a contradiction to the special theory of mass shootings. But he's not a contradiction to the general theory of mass shootings. The general theory of mass shootings is that all mass shooters, all of them, have never been fathers. They're not fathers. And so to, to put this another way, um, if you see a large, threatening guy approaching you, and it looks to you as if he's on the warpath, he's just got a sinister and menacing glare to his face, he's got a provocative thrust to his chin, 
and his the swing of his arms just suggests that this is not good news for the Jews or whoever you are, uh, then you suddenly notice that he's walking hand in hand with his son or hand in hand with his daughter or ha- both hands. And I realize that contradicts the hands in a threatening gesture from before, but you get the idea. I think you will agree that all of a sudden you will heave a sigh of huge relief because somehow or another you know that a guy walking with his child is not about to start a street fight. Not going to happen. And uh, unless he's forced to defend his child, then you have to watch out. But here is a way in which human beings are uniquely different from animals. Animals all have a maternal relationship. Animals all relate to their mothers. Mothers all relate to their children. But I'm afraid that in an animalized society, there are many, many, many men who have provided and placed sperm in the womb of a woman and actually don't even know if they're fathers. And if they are, they know nothing about the location or condition of their children. That is an animalizing of society because it is only in an animal society that children have a relationship only with mom. In a human society, in a society that recognizes that we are not so much like apes as we are like angels, a society that recognizes that we are pulled heavenwards by an irresistible tug towards our Father in heaven, well, in a society like that, the relationship that our Father in heaven has with us is a relationship that we deeply desire to duplicate with our own children. That's right. That is exactly what we do. And that is why it is so hugely important. Yes, that's right. I would say that if every man both had and has a father and is a father, crime would vanish in the United States of America. Never mind mass shootings. Pickpocketing would vanish because fathers are good for society. And again, I'm not talking about a man who made a sperm deposit in a woman. Not talking about that. Talking about a man who loves his child and a man who is devoted to his child and a man who walks through life holding that child's hand and guiding that child and feeling a huge and tremendous fulfillment in being able to plant into the life of that child, whether it is feeding the child, educating the child, teaching the child how to throw a ball, teaching the child how to use a screwdriver or a hammer or a a drill, uh, whatever it is, all of those things and a whole lot more that fathers do are good for children, better for fathers, and best for society. And so if there's one phrase that is sort of central to my thinking as I tell you about the topic of today's show, it is that far more than a father giving life to a child, a child grants life to its father.
That's the amazing thing. You say a father, oh, fantastic, you have a child. The father should really say, no, the key thing is this child has made me a father. Lucky me. And, uh, and I, I think it's really, really important uh, because societies are different with fathers. I'll tell you something else. Men who never become fathers die lonely. Well, you might say, what about women? Women who, who don't uh, have, father, have children. Well, it's true. Women who wanted children and never had suffer incredible pangs of pain. There's no question about it. Uh, we know from stories in the Bible how God's mercy is aroused by a childless woman yearning for a child, right? We, we get that. It's real. But women who don't have children do not necessarily end up lonely. You know why? Because women are more sociable than men. That's why. It's as simple as that. And when you uh, happen to visit areas of retirement, right, there are certain parts of Florida that are, I mean, between you and me, frankly, depressing because they are elderly communities, retirement communities. They are communities that actually prohibit young people from living there, if you can believe such an insanity. But, um, uh, yeah, they do. And you go to places like that, you'll always see crowds of women. By the way, trust me on this. And if you don't, give yourself the experience because they've got these communities dotted around the United States and around other countries as well. Visit a community of old people. And, number one, you'll sense the stench of death in the air because there's no young people around. And, number two, also problematic. Oh, by the way, they try and banish that with all kinds of games and with music and with activities and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's just, as they say, rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. But um, here's what's more interesting. You'll find that, generally speaking, the women participate in group activities more than the men. Um, nine times out of ten, and, it's, and it really is as high as that, when you see somebody sitting alone on a bench, it's going to be a guy. Uh, invariably, the women are in crowds. They're in groups of two, three, four, whatever it is. Um, this is, you know, it's a little bit like how women go to the bathroom. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? I think every, every guy's noticed this, right? Uh, a woman says, excuse me, I'm just going to the powder room. Guys never go to a powder room, by the way, just so as you know. Uh, and immediately, another woman at the table will say, you know what, I, I'll, I'm, I'm going as well. And then off they go, the two of them. Or sometimes the woman leans to another one and says, I'm going to the powder room. The other woman recognizes that's a request for company. Uh, guys don't do that, right? We are not as tuned as attuned to company as women. So when I speak about the tragedy of not being a parent, I don't talk so much about mothers because they manage. Women who don't have children are not nearly in as bad a shape as men who don't have children. There's no comparison. And how do I know it? I know it through the good help of Meiji University, and you'll pardon me, I don't know the correct pronunciation. This is a, uh, a university in Tokyo. Uh, it's quite a prestigious and well-known university, and they do a lot of very interesting research there. Uh, one of the things that uh, I got a lot of information from them on was when I began studying something uh, known as Kodokushi. Kodokushi is terrible. It's a really, really sad thing. 
Um, Coda, and we have it a little bit in the United States as well, but I don't know that we don't have a name for it. Kodakushi is when uh, people die alone, and they nobody even knows that they're dead. And then in some cases, you know, they've arranged for utility payments to be paid by automatic withdrawal from their account, and it's not until the account is depleted that all of a sudden the utility company turns off the power, and eventually somebody checks up, and it turns out the occupant of the apartment has been dead for months. It's horrible. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's horrible to talk about. It's horrible to think about. It's horrible that it happens, but it does. And overwhelmingly, it happens to men because, generally speaking, if a woman doesn't show up, you know, an old elderly woman doesn't show up at the, uh, at the usual activity or her friend, she gets to go with her friend at the coffee shop or whatever it is, her friend will immediately institute inquiries. What's going on? But guys don't automatically have these kinds of relationships. We're different. Right. And that's one of the reasons we need women in our lives to provide connection. And so uh, Kodokushi is a, a horrible um, and very, I mean, there's too much of it. It makes our numbers in the United States look tiny by comparison. Uh, there are a lot of people dying alone in Japan. Guess who the overwhelming majority of them are? Well, you know the answer. It's not women. It's all men. That's right. And the reason it's, it's so awful in Japan is because it was ba way back in the 1950s that Japan implemented a program called the New Life Movement. Is, isn't the New Life Movement a, a fantastic name? The New Life Movement uh, was a birth control program. New Life Movement. New Life for the In those days, they considered, they still believed the lie propagated by scientists you know what they say about climate change? Well, there's scientific consensus, say all the foolish little girls. And uh, back in the 1950s, they said the same thing. There's scientific consensus that overpopulation is threatening our survival. Really, people believe that, right? Now, you know, of course, that uh, that's not true today. We recognize the problem is the reverse. And, in fact, one of the reasons that... Um, uh, Angela Merkel, the head of Germany, brought in two million uh, Muslim men was because of the fertility crisis in Germany, right? Because since the 1950s, people started believing the scientific consensus. Too many people! And so uh, Japan, uh, Germany realized they needed more people, and she didn't understand because the left so deeply believes that religion is unimportant. They so really believe that religion is trivial that they really believed that it didn't matter if they brought in Protestants or Muslims, if they brought in uh, Mormons and Quakers or whether they brought in Muslims. They didn't think it mattered if they brought in Roman Catholics or they brought in Muslims. They thought it makes no difference. Well, guess what? There's now scientific consensus that it does make it. Well, of course, there's no scientific consensus on that. But any normal person. And, and the reason today that you are seeing in Britain and in Germany, it's really a revolt of the peasants against the lords. 
you know, that's what Brexit is. That's what's happening in Germany. And even, even in the United States of America since 2016, uh, you can really see it as a revolt of the peasants against our lords and masters. Uh, and one of the reasons is because of a differing view where we peasants think that even if we're not religious ourselves, we recognize the significance and the power and the impact of religion, whereas our lords and masters worship the religion of secular fundamentalism, and uh, in that, religion is trivial and unimportant, and so it simply doesn't matter. And so, back in the 1950s, Japan implemented what I mean, if you've ever heard of a euphemism, eh? the New Life Movement. The New Life Movement was a very dramatic birth control movement. Well, guess what, Japan? You did it. It worked. And by the 1960s, in barely 10 years, the New Life Movement in Japan was in full swing. And they had also just enacted something called, and again, give them credit for naming, uh, the Japanese really named cleverly. Listen to this. They introduced a new law called the Eugenic Protection Act. That's right, the protection of eugenics, the Eugenic Protection Act. You know what that was? That's right, legalization of abortion. So uh, with abortion on the uh, legalized and swinging and with the new life movement uh, encouraging birth control, well, guess what? They had halved Japan's fertility rate. And so now, here we are, 20 years into the 21st century, and um, for those and other reasons, marriage has virtually vanished. I was going to say, it, you know, very few people, comparatively few people in Japan get married. Even fewer have children. Even fewer than that have more than one child. And not surprisingly, the number of men who die alone has been skyrocketing. It's tragedy. They, they call it Kodo Kushi. How horrible is that? So um, <clears throat> we've got to understand what fatherhood is all about. Yeah, it's a fantastic way of giving. Uh, gentlemen, it's not enough to deposit sperm. That won't make you a father. What you're going to need is a wife, not just a woman, but a wife, because a wife will make sure that there is a relationship between you and that child. Because believe you me, if the mother of your child wants you to have no relationship with that child, believe me, that is exactly what's going to happen, right? And, uh, just, I mean, I know every one of you divorced men listening, wondering if you'll ever again have a relationship with your children, you know the extent to which your relationship with your children is utterly and totally dependent upon your wife's proclivity. If she chooses to give you a relationship, she will, and if she doesn't, not only will she prevent it, she will also poison your children against you. It's a reality. If you want to be a father, right, and that doesn't just mean having a little children that look like you wandering around the world, but if you want to be a father, with all that that means, if you want a little hand reaching up to clutch your hand as you walk down the street, well, then you need a wife eager to make of you a father. And uh, women, yeah, 
If you want to improve the world, if you care about the future, you want to be a giver, make a man a father. And if you're a man who cares about the future, and you're a man who really wants to be a giver, well then, be, become, and be a father. And you know, I should just tell you something. For those of you who are biblically interested, um, there are over 1,500 verses in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, 1,500 verses, 1,534 to be exact, if you care. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is that only 55 verses in, right? You've got the creation of the world. You've got Garden of Eden. You've got Adam and Eve. You've got, um, uh, and then 55 verses in, in chapter 2, verse 24, we have, a um, a uh, a verse. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. This is the first mention of parents. The first mention of father and mother. Um, go to the uh, into the book of Exodus, chapter twenty, ten commandments. The fifth commandment: honor your father and your mother. Go to the book of Leviticus, chapter nineteen. You got every man must revere his mother and his father. So. It's not surprising, right, for an institution so fundamental to the human experience as parenthood, you would expect uh, God's message to mankind to contain many references to mother and father, which exactly it does. But here's the interesting thing. In the book of Genesis, uh, in the book of Genesis, there are over 90 references to father but only 19 references to mother. Isn't that interesting? So in the book of Genesis, it'll say father of, father of, father, uh, his father, so-and-so, etc., etc. You'll count over 90 mentions of the word father, but you'll only find 19 mentions of the word mother. Well, this is proof of the sexist, patriarchal nature of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Well, needless to say, that is unredeemed, unpumped, fettered bilge water. Uh, the, the reality, of course, is that uh, the Bible does not have to tell us anything we already know. For instance, the Bible doesn't say, make sure you breathe regularly several times a minute, right? Because you're going to do it anyway. The Bible doesn't need to stress motherhood because even hardened criminals incarcerated in some of the darkest corners of the country's dreadful penal system have tattooed on their arms the word mom. In spite of me having inquired extensively, I have never encountered or heard of anybody who has tattooed on his arm the word dad or father. The Bible doesn't have to tell us about our relationship with mom because it's natural. It's there. In, in our natural biological condition, we relate to mom. But the gift of father, now that is something that comes from God. That is something that is rare and it's difficult to bring about. And it's something that almost guarantees a stable, wholesome, healthy, productive, safe society. Plenty, plenty fatherhood going on.
That's what is needed. And that's why it is that uh, the Bible in the book of Genesis particularly stresses fatherhood so much more than motherhood. Now, obviously, if you're somebody, and I accept, I have many listeners who fall into the category of believing, like most secularists, that the Bible is nothing but a compendium of ancient, bland babblings by a bunch of bored Bedouins. Uh, in which case, then spending two minutes with me telling you about how many times the word mother appears in Genesis and how many more times the word, it's irrelevant, right? Why would we even spend time on something as trivial as that? But if, on the other hand, you adopt the belief with me that we are here because our Father in heaven put us here. And by the way, this will also give you some clue as to why throughout the liturgy and, and prayer books in Judaism and Christianity, God is seen as a father, not as a mother. Uh, from what I've told you today, that should be very clear, and you should be able to understand that in a way that you can explain it to your children, whether you are a mother or a father. All of that is, um, is, is very helpful, I think. And so there it is, my friends, as far as we can possibly go today. Uh, be a father, make somebody else a father, and cherish fatherhood. It's good for kids. It's good for dads. Needless to say, good for moms as well. It goes without saying. And it's good for society. And so remember that far more than a father giving life to a child, it is really the great gift of a child to grant life to its father. Folks, thanks for being with me on the show. Thanks for telling people about the show and expanding the listenership around the world and around your city and your neighborhood. Thank you very much and around your social online community. Uh, all very much appreciated. Go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Connect with me there. Would you tell me where you're listening from? I always love hearing that. Uh, you might want to write a note. You might want to submit a question or ask the rabbi. You might want to look at old e editions of Ask the Rabbi. But it's all there at rabbidaniellappin.com, where you're also able to read about the Financial Prosperity Collection at rabbidaniellappin.com, the 10-part, uh, 10-hour video series on increasing your revenue. I am your rabbi, and I thank you for being part of the show. I wish you a wonderful week of good times with your family, with your friends, with your faith, and with your finances. I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Till next week, God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.